Welcome to the Shambhala Publications podcast. In this episode, University of Colorado professor Holly Gailey discusses translation of Buddhist texts with Wollstone Fletcher of the Padmakara Translation Group, one of the most highly regarded translators of Buddhism from the Tibetan language. The focus is on the 8th century classic work, the Bodhicharya Avatara, or Way of the Bodhisattva. This discussion is certainly not just for translators, but for anyone engaged in Buddhist practice and interested in topics related to its transmission to the West. Please also visit our site for a wealth of resources on the way of the Bodhisattva, including videos of this talk. So let me just um, say again, welcome, and um, we're also glad to have Shambhala Publications come to Boulder and be able to host these kinds of events. And I'm particularly uh, delighted to be able to have this conversation with Wollstone Fletcher, one of the uh, long-standing Sadra fellows. And... Um, in a way, Wollstone is the um, hidden force bet- behind the Padmakara Translation Committee. I remember when I would read some of these brilliant translations and I would wonder, who are these people? And uh, here we are. <laughs> uh, Wollstone has partnered with um, Helena Blankletter on a number of translations, including the one that we're going to look at today. I love the first translation of it, so I have the old version, The Way of the Bodhisattva. Um, But he's worked on so many texts, so I'm just going to name a few of them, even though I'm sure Wollstone's work is familiar to all of you. Uh, The Treasury of Precious Qualities, The Root Stanzas of the Middle Way, of course, The Way of the Bodhisattva, The Nectar of Manjushri Speech, White Lotus, Introduction to the Middle Way, the Adornment to the Middle Way, Food of the Bodhisattvas for those vegetarians in the crowd, Councils for My Heart, and the Wisdom Chapter. So that's Jamgan Mipam's commentary on the ninth chapter, The Way of the Bodhisattva. So those of you who are doing the weekend, I think, are going to get into that. Um, Such a long list. So um, really, really honored to be able to uh, have this conversation with you, Wilston. Um, and I just thought it'd be nice for us to start if you could say a little bit about how you got into translation, how you came to translate this particular text, and what your journey has been. Okay. Um, it's nice to see you all. I don't want to begin by saying that. Um, I suppose... Um, I should confess that uh, my I didn't my translation work really didn't get off to a very good start uh, in the sense that uh, when um, when Tukarim, when Tukavima Wangel started to talk about uh, translation and encouraging t- people to translate I really didn't want to do it and I told him that I didn't really believe in translation anyway uh, because I'd been brought up, you know, in my studies, uh, studying modern languages, <clears throat> to have the general attitude that it's better to read the originals, you know. Uh, if you want to read a text, you should do the proper thing and learn the language and read it in the original. And um, also, uh, I'd been brought up as a Catholic in the... Uh, 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and I'd witnessed at first hand the, what to my mind was the catastrophic translation of the Latin liturgy. Mm-hmm. 
and the suffering that it had caused. Uh, I mean, it's true that many people were in favor of it and were enthusiastic, but um, I thought there was, that had many problems and, um, and it led to, or it went hand in hand with the great loss of uh, a feeling of the sacred in the uh, Catholic liturgy. Anyway, that was something in the background. So I, had a, I started off with the feeling that um, you know, I wanted to study the Dharma, but I didn't really want to translate. So I got a good ticking off from my teacher who said that um, that, that was of no importance. And, uh, <laughs> and that um, uh, the only way that the Dharma could be taught to people was that the text should be made available. The teachings contained in the text should be made available. And that the uh, Tibetan, Tibetan Buddhism has such an enormous uh, literature uh, and there's such a rich um, array of uh, traditions. Um, not only were they uh, actually in danger of extinction, but they were unavailable to people who were actually uh, thirsting for the, the Dharma. So he said, um, that's all part of the Bodhisattva um, commitment. So, and also he said that um, because we, when he when he founded uh, Padmakara, it was after the first uh, three-year retreat in Dordogne. And although he didn't say this to me personally, I, but I, I, I heard about it, and it's completely plausible. He said that, you know, you really haven't got very far. <laughs> <laughs> in the practice, so you better accumulate some merit by translating <laughs> and not waste your life. So, so that's how it started. And um, actually, the first, the first text that uh, we worked on, Helena and I, Helena is my, my companion, and we work, we've been working together uh, since ever, actually. So the... Uh, and she, in fact, she has a very good knowledge of Tibetan, and um, she is the one who usually, who does the hard work, in you know, sort of on the coal face, so to speak, you know, with the actual text. And then I come by, I come behind and and rework them again with the Tibetan, and then we, you know, the things go back and forth, and we end up with a, you know, the edit, edited, more or less edited version, version. So. Anyway, we started with the, the first text was not the way of the Bodhisattva. It was um, a little text of um, Alojong. Uh, it was the last teaching that Dingo Kensu Rinpoche gave in Dordogne on the uh, seven-point mind training. You may have heard of it. It's, it was called uh, Enlightened Courage. Mm -hmm. And I think Snow Lion eventually published it, republished it. Um, and then... Uh, various events took place. And so the next thing in line was the way of the Bodhisattva. But you might actually be interested in this uh, little story, which was that um, actually the way of the Bodhisattva, the Tibetan page was the first text I ever was given. And it was a Buddhist friend who gave it to me while I was still a Christian monk. Mm. And uh, when I was um, on my way out, so to speak, uh, and becoming a Buddhist, I had the 
opportunity to go to London and uh, meet His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who was he was um, teaching. Actually, he visited the monastery that I was I was living in, and then later on, I got the opportunity to go down to London to see him privately and sort of unburden myself and tell him my problems. And uh, it was at that time I actually had the text of the uh, Chunjuk with me, and so I asked him to bless it. And he said, you're studying, you're reading Tibetan, you're studying Tibetan. I said, well, I would like to. And he said, oh yes, very, very good. And so he put the, bo the, the book to his forehead, and he said, that was when you said, if I know anything about compassion, it's on the basis of this text that I've learnt it. So that was the origin of this mm -hmm. quotation. And, um, and so then, uh, later on, he came to Dordogne and taught the uh, Way of the Bodhisattva, and it was following that time that uh, it was decided to do a new, new version of the, mm -hmm. the text. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, when it, went, when it eventually went to press, it, it went to press almost at the same time as Crosby and Skilton and the Wallace's oh. translation. So they all came out more or less at the same time. Yeah. Um, that's how I came to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I'm, I'm really intrigued by um, your comment about um, translations of the Catholic liturgy in terms of how do you convey the sanctity of a text? How do you capture that particular poetic or liturgical quality to it? And I wonder if you could, you know, say something about that um, in terms of your translation of the way of the Bodhisattva. I'm struck, you know, not only that you chose to do it in verse where others haven't, but also just the kind of the rhythm of that verse and the way that it it moves people. I mean, I teach it every year in my Foundations of Buddhism class, and it's amazing how even, you know, undergrads who'd rather be skiing are genuinely moved, you know, by this text and your translation of it in particular. Hmm. I think one of the, one of the uh, drawbacks with the translation of the Latin liturgy was that it was done by a committee. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and it was also uh, committee translations tend to be uh, very time consuming and are not very fruitful because I, at least I've come to find I've come to discover as you know in modern translation theory is that translation is a, an act of writing believe it or not. Mm. And it's a sort of, there is a certain creativity involved, and it's a personal act. Um, I mean, even though uh, Helen and I work together, we have our different areas in particular, and the actual putting it into English has always been my particular job. So um, Another another drawback of the, Latin, the translation of the Latin liturgy was that it was aimed to be used by every English speaker in the entire world. Mm. So that meant Australians, South Africans, New Zealanders, Americans. And of course, they all speak English, but they all speak very different kinds of English. So to have something that was kind of accessible to everybody, it had, they had to choose the lowest common denominator. And the result was very flat. 
And it was sort of, um, for something like the liturgy, like any liturgy, you need a certain ceremony in the language. There needs to be a certain musicality. Then you, you have to use words that are not just vulgar, you know, conversation of every day, you know, or that you might, you, you know, you find in the ordinary press, for instance. Um, it has to be, it has to have a certain um, ceremony, as I say, a certain poetic, poetics, certain, precisely, precisely that thing that tends, that moves people. And um, there was also something that I always kept in mind, was a, um, a state, uh, something that I'd read in the works of uh, a Catholic saint called St. Francis of Sales, who said that you can attract far more flies with a teaspoonful of honey than you can with a barrel full of vinegar. <laughs> <laughs> so it seems to me that actually it's worthwhile, uh, when, you, when you translate, it's worthwhile taking a great deal of trouble in the target language. Actually, that's the most important thing. People, many people say that you have to have a perfect knowledge of, if you're translating from Tibetan, you need a perfect knowledge of Tibetan and you need a perfect knowledge of English. It's not really true. You don't need a perfect knowledge of Tibetan. Partly because you're going to be working with people who are native speakers and who do have a perfect knowledge. The main thing is that you have to understand what the Tibetan says, but then you have to put it in uh, an English that will speak and will convey the meaning in the most effective way. Now, when it comes to uh, the verse form, um, I mean, I'd, I'd read other uh, translations that were done in prose, but I knew that um, this was uh, written in verse in Tibetan and that it was written in verse in Sanskrit. I wouldn't say it's poetry. Mm -hmm. I would say it's verse. And that is actually a very important component because the basic verse form of this text in Sanskrit is called anastub. And it's a sort of basic kind of meter of a great deal of Sanskrit literature. I'm looking at you, David. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> and this was kind of translated into Tibetan. And the, the Anastud meter is like two lines, uh, each line divided by a strong caesura into two sections. And this uh, emerges in Tibetan as a kind of quatrain of four lines of seven, nine, eleven, thirteen syllables, however long it may be. And um, it's not, as I say, it's not a particularly poetic device. It is a kind of mnemonic device. It is to allow people to memorize the text easily. And um, so this kind of meter that is used in both in Tibetan, the, the Tibetan meter and the Sanskrit meter are very different, completely different. Uh, but it's their kind of bread-and-butter meter that they use. It's a bit like the hexameter in Latin, 
where you, you, know, you can use it for poetry, you can use it for history, you can use it for philosophy, astrology, recipes, whatever. Something that you need to re remember easily. And so it struck me that uh, it would be good to try and produce something in English that would do the same work, do the same job. Um, now, I'm, I'm not a poet. Uh, I mean, I, lo I love to read poetry, but I'm not a, I, I, would, I can't claim to be a poet. Um, but it's not that difficult to write a yambic meter. By yambic, I mean uh, it is the standard meter of English poetry. You know, you get it all the time. Um, you know, that time of year thou mayst in me behold when yellow leaves or none or few do hang upon bare boughs that shake against the cold. Typical Shakespearean sonnet meter, right? So, and, and you get the same in Milton, you get the same in... in uh, and on the other hand, uh, many, many uh, English poets, much of English poetry uh, rhymes. Um, although it's, um, it's usually considered a mark of genius that Milton didn't make his Paradise Lost my, a rhyme. Because the trouble with rhyme is it eventually becomes uh, annoying. <laughs> and, it, and it can kind of trivialize. It can, be, it can be very effective and very amusing. But over a long, long period, it gets too much. So Milton dropped it, but he kept the rhythm and he kept the length of the line. So it struck me that that would be a good thing to imitate. And um, it's not often that I was able to produce pentameters, you know, um, ten syllables. But I don't think that matters very much. But the main thing is to establish a rhythm that, go, that can flow through the, the text. And uh, the purpose of it was to uh, precisely to uh, act as a vehicle for the, uh, for the message. Um, you know, the uh, reading, and uh, yeah, maybe I should say this now, that the, you know, this, uh, if this was a translation made from the Tibetan translation, uh, there are several reasons for this. But uh, one of the consequences of it is that um, you don't have direct, as uh, uh, direct access to Shantideva's text. You read it through the medium of the Tibetan. For somebody like me, who, who's not an academic, uh, but who came to this through a kind of practice background, uh, that seemed to me appropriate because I had received this text from the Tibetans. And uh, the Buddhism, for me, was a gift from the Tibetans. And uh, the whole kind of literature of Tibetan Buddhism, even the literature based on Shantideva, which is a large collection of commentaries, are all uh, in Tibetan. And they represent generations and generations of people who have practiced this, this text, the teaching of this text. And so when, uh, you know, when one receives a, teachings on it from somebody like the Dalai Lama or Dinga Kensi Rinpoche, you feel that this is something that is a, a very strong living force 
that kind of you enter, the kind of stream that you enter. Um, this is not to in any, in any way um, denigrate or depreciate the value of the academy. Because, but it's a very different ball game. The academy is not trying to um, convey Buddhism except as a, as a, as a thing described, mm. right? Uh, the academy uses scientific method to uh, you know, analyze, to investigate, to establish the text, to investigate the history surrounding the text, the, uh, the way it was transmitted, so far as we know, from one country to another, and so unpreserved. And, um, of course, in the process, they, bring, they dig up a whole lot of very valuable and useful information, mm -hmm. which is very valuable and useful even for people who are pra practicing, especially for Western practitioners, because although we are disciples of the Tibetans, we aren't Tibetans. And the Buddhism that we hope to establish, hope to practice, hope to understand, hope to pass on to other Westerners is our affair in the sense that it's something that we have to do. And we can't pretend to be Tibetans. Um, and so at the same time, when, uh, in understand, understanding a text like this, you know, we have, speaking for myself, I'm extremely grateful for uh, the kind of thing that the Academy has established and has created and has, you know, transmitted in its own way. Um, so, uh, as I say, we, one doesn't have uh, direct access to Shantideva's voice. <laughs> But it's also quite important to realize that when we talk about the Sanskrit Bodhicharivatara, we're talking about a text that has a very sort of arose in a very particular situation. Um, it was written in, we, we assume it was written in Sanskrit, or at any rate spoken in Sanskrit first time. But it's worth re remembering that Sanskrit was not Shantideva's mother tongue. He didn't learn Sanskrit from his mother. Sanskrit by that time, even by the time of the Buddha, they say, Sanskrit had ceased to be a living language. Right? I don't, I don't know if that's true by the time of the Buddha, but certainly by the time of Shantideva. It was not, it was not a, a vernacular in the sense of a language that children spoke with their mothers. It was a learnt language. It was a language that was learnt extremely well and that which everybody could speak Everybody who had an education could speak, but it wasn't what they were born with, so to speak, or what they learned shortly after their birth. It was very like Latin in the European Middle Ages, where uh, everybody who had an education, everybody who went to the universities, they spoke Latin completely fluently. And so, in a way, it was a living language, but it wasn't, of an, it wasn't something that they learned naturally. <sighs> It, it was a living language, and it, it developed according to its own dynamic, uh, medieval Latin, for instance. And I'm sure it's the case for the Sanskrit of medieval India. So when, you're, uh, if, when, when somebody says to you, well, why do you translate a translation? Why don't you go to the original? 
it's worth remembering that that original is actually quite an artificial um, artifact, so to speak. Um, so, anyway, to cut a long story short, what I was trying to what I'm trying to say is that um, in order for people to Westerners, English speakers, to um, sort of taste something of what Shantideva says and to kind of um, have access to the, his incredible teaching, it seemed to me to produce a, a version that was as accessible and as easy to understand as possible. Mm-hmm. Of, course, of course, it's not always correct. <laughs> and that was why I was very glad to have the opportunity to, revi- to do a revision. Well, I'm, I'm, I think I've mentioned to Wollstone that I'm partial to the first version, and I'm, I'm going to actually ask if you wouldn't mind reading a few verses, and I think all of you in the audience have it in the Tibetan and in both versions of the English by Wollstone, and then also, um, uh, also some of the previous translations. Um, but um, it strikes me, actually, that... Um, when you talk about Shantideva himself composing in an artificial mm. language, and of course those of us who study Tibetan know that Chukhe, the Tibetan uh, Dharma language, is also a kind of artificial yes, language. Yeah. It's not something that somebody off the street mm. can just pick up and read and understand. And so one of the things that I appreciate about your translation mm. is that it's got an archaic quality to it. The iambic pentameter makes it already elicits a kind of sense of it as a classic, and some of your some of your choice of words also um, have a kind of archaic quality. Can I get you to read from this one? Or are you gonna? <laughs> <laughs> this is no longer the official version. <laughs> Where do you want me to start? Just I think we did we Xerox for people five to ten verses five to ten in chapter one. Okay. Um, maybe I could start from the Please. beginning. Yeah. however you like. To those who go in bliss, the Dharma they have mastered, and to all their heirs, to all who merit veneration, I bow down. According to tradition, I shall now in brief describe the entrance to the Bodhisattva discipline. What I have to say has all been said before and I am destitute of learning and of skill with words. I therefore have no thought that this might be of benefit to others. I wrote it only to sustain my understanding. My faith will thus be strengthened for a little while, that I might grow accustomed to this virtuous way. But others who now chance upon my words may profit also, equal to myself in fortune. So hard to find such ease and wealth whereby to render meaningful this human birth. If now I fail to turn it to my profit, how could such a chance be mine again? As when a flash of lightning rends the night, and in its glare shows all the dark black clouds it hid, likewise rarely through the Buddha's power, virtuous thoughts rise, brief and transient in the world. Thus behold the utter frailty of goodness, Except for perfect bodhicitta, there is nothing able to withstand the great and overwhelming strength of evil. The mighty Buddhas, pondering for many ages, have seen that this and only this will save the the boundless multitudes 
and bring them easily to supreme joy. Those who wish to overcome the sorrows of their lives, lives and put to flight the pain and sufferings of beings, those who wish to win such great beatitude should never turn their back on bodhicitta. Should bodhicitta come to birth in one who suffers in the dungeons of samsara, in that instant he is called the Buddha's heir, worshipful alike to gods and men. For like the supreme substance of the alchemists, it takes the impure form of human flesh and makes of it the priceless body of a Buddha. Such is bodhicitta. We should grasp it firmly. Mm. Thank you. <laughs> so would you speak to some of the stylistic choices you made in terms of uh, language? I feel like sometimes people are a little bit shocked when they encounter more than one translation of a text as if really there was such a thing as literal equivalence. And clearly this is a creative, passionate project of feeling into the text and then, you know, imagining how best to create perhaps a comparable effect on the reader. Mm. So it would be wonderful to hear some of your process. Um. Uh, it's true that, uh, that, I mean, there's no such thing, you must understand, there's absolutely no such thing as a definitive translation. Uh, and language changes, society changes, the people who are going to be reading the translation change, and they have different, ex uh, different sensitivities, different um, capacities, different expectations, so... What will work in one generation may not work later. And so it's normal that there will be revisions and new translations. Um, this is actually something that Tibetans find difficult to grasp. Because for them, uh, they think uh, that the translation of the Kangyur and Tengyur was done by beings who were not ordinary. And what they produced was a perfect rendering that was definitive. There's no need for any improvement. Right? The translation is there, it's finished. It's the equivalent of the Sanskrit original. And it actually replaces the Sanskrit original. Uh, because, of course, as you know, after the 12th century, all uh, contact with India and between India and Tibet ceased. And there was no, uh, no possibility of any kind of uh, new translation or any contact with the, the Indian tradition. Um, so that's a bit of a surprise to them. So it they, they, they has to be explained, what, you know, what I've just been saying. Um, in my case, in this particular case, uh, you know, as I said, this was a very early attempt. And... Um, my Tibetan, I, I, I knew a lot less Tibetan than I even know now. I mean, I, I don't know much now, but I knew, I knew a lot less then. And so what happened was that I, I went through the whole text with uh, Jigme Kensa Rinpoche, who we went through it word by word so that I, you know, knew more or less what it was. And I, can, I could figure out, you know, more or less the, the Tibetan. But um, I think that there, you know, there's quite a lot of... Uh, 
things added that are not there in the Tibetan, and a certain amount of poetic license crept in, and uh, and people who so, and so this attracted adverse comment from uh, other Tibetan students, you know, people who, you know, other translation groups, and so on. <laughs> <laughs> so and I thought you know they're right. So it was it was good to have the opportunity to kind of kind of tidy it up a bit, uh, which is what I hoped uh, was done. I mean, looking at it now, at a distance of uh, almost what twenty years at least, twenty five years, uh, there are many things that I would li again like to change, even in the even in the revision. But on the whole. Um, the ba my ba my basic uh, feeling, I suppose, was to uh, not to make too many demands of the reader. Mm -hmm. So uh, too many kind of archaisms or things that are a bit local to Britain, and you know, mm -hmm. or uh, that were maybe not very clear. They could. The thing was to, was to find a kind of level that would you know would be as satisfactory to everybody. And also to remove what were bona fide mistakes. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, in the case of this first, um, I know that you like this Ren's the Night. <laughs> I that. really do. Um, um, all I can say is that the second version uh, follows much more closely the uh, commentary of Kampo Kunpal, um, the Nectar of Manjushri speech. And um, you see, in the, in the first two lines of the first, uh, the first version, as when a flash of lightning rends the night, and in its glare shows all the dark black clouds it hid, the dark black clouds are kind of rele relegated to the end. Whereas um, in the commentarial tradition, the dark black, dark black clouds are the the um, the dripper the uh, the obscurations that, that veil the uh, Buddha nature and um, you know the dark black, the dark night is a night without where uh, in which the the sun of Yeshe of primordial wisdom doesn't shine where there is no moon there is no lamp of learning there are no stars and so on but then suddenly there is this this um, flash of lightning. Um, well, the reason why I changed it was I thought it was I thought it was drawing attention to elements that were not the most important thing. So mm -hmm. that's why I changed it because the flash of lightning rending the night is sort of it's it's kind of as you say it sort of attracts your attention a lot more than um, the sudden lightning glares and all is clearly shown. Well, it's yeah. a question, really, of, of, of where your fidelity is. Is the mm. fidelity to the audience so that you're moving the readers? Is the fidelity to the original, in which case you want to check the Sanskrit? Or is the fidelity to the commentarial tradition and the living tradition, in which case you make different choices? And yeah. so, um, you know, none of, none of those are right or wrong. But um, I feel like the first translation... Um, speaks perhaps more to mm. the reader and, and the second one more to the commentarial tradition. It's more flat, you mean? 
<laughs> I didn't say it. <laughs> no, I can, I can see, I can see it is. Uh, <coughs> and in a way, I intended it to be a little flatter. But anyway, uh, I mean, these things are questions of taste. Of, of course, course you know. of course. And, uh, you know, you're, you're talking about loyalties, and uh, mm -hmm. it's, a nice, it's a razor's edge all yes. the time, you know. You, yes. Uh, you have to sort of balance between the one and the other. But uh, at least as far as uh, this translation is concerned, the, uh, the greatest fidelity was paid to the commentarial tradition. Mm -hmm. So uh, because we wanted to uh, try to make sure that the actual content, what Shantideva was talking about, actually gets across, because that's the most important thing. That's what people really need to know. They can be, it's true, they can be entertained and, um, uh, I wouldn't say delighted, but you know what I mean, by the form. But the form is, the form, the fo I believe the form is important, but it's secondary. Mm. It's secondary. And actually there was, a, I remember in the first uh, translation conference in Boulder, mm -hmm. you know, in the, people were talking about whether we should aim for elegance, mm -hmm. and, you know, and uh, I, I said, I, d I don't think we should aim for elegance, actually. I don't, think you sh I don't think you should use the text as a sort of platform on which to create something beautiful. I think it will be beautiful if you capture what the text says in a way that people can actually easily understand, because the content is itself beautiful. See, the, when, when I, the reason for my talking about the Tibetan and then the Sanskrit is that we can't sort of uh, capture the poetics of the Sanskrit. And actually, the poetics of the Tibetan are difficult. Um, what is important is the actual... Uh, and anyway, the, the, the form of the, the Sanskrit and the form of the Tibetan is really quite humdrum. The beauty of the, beauty of the, of the uh, Bodhicharya-Vatara is the content and the way that Shantideva arranges the ideas and you know but so i i i actually it's interesting that you're saying it because because you are such an elegant translator and that's what actually makes your piece stand out when i look at let's say crosby skilton's or wallace who aren't even translating it in verse who mm. are only going for the content and not at all interested in style mm. you know then Actually, to me, there's something missing. At night, in dark, thick with clouds, a lightning flash gives a moment's brightness. It doesn't have the same, hmm. you know, mood. And the, and the question always for me is to what extent are style and content inseparable? In other words, that the form in which something is put and conveyed is part, is integral to the meaning. And so then the question becomes, you know, how can you capture especially in languages that are so different, something of the style in order to give the reader that, that aesthetic mm. But that's aspect. the thing, you see. You're not, on the whole, you're not capturing the style of the original. The style is, um, uh, occurs in the translation. Mm. So uh, it's actually, sometimes, uh, there are places where uh, Shantideva, I think in the Sanskrit, uses... Actually, he, he uses many uh, poetic figures. Right. Like, um, he plays on words, puns, mm -hmm. and things like this, that actually don't come through in the Tibetan. Yeah. Sometimes you get the impression that they have, you know, like usually by a rep repeated word or repeated idea. And that, I think, you can bring through. 
-hmm. in English. But the rest of it is the, the translator mm -hmm. and the translator's responsibility. So he's to blame, actually, if you, uh, you know, if, if, if the style sort of takes you away from the meaning, mm -hmm. then I think that's a big mistake. Mm -hmm. And I think that actually in the two other versions, mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're very good translations with, of great integrity mm -hmm. and they have captured the meaning. I think the meaning is there. Mm -hmm. So they have done what every translation should do, which is to uh, convey the, the sense of Shantideva. And actually, uh, looking, looking for, especially uh, Skilton and Crosby, they, um, they bring in many elements that were clear in the Sanskrit, but not so clear in the, in the Tibetan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, actually, um, I don't know if we have time, but there's... In the course of this afternoon, mm -hmm. uh, Marcus received a, an email from um, somebody who'd been at the, at the previous uh, translation conference and uh, hopes to come to the next one. And he was saying that uh, it's very, very important for translators to see the difference between meaning translation and mm -hmm. literal translation. Mm -hmm. And what we want is literal translation. We don't want meaning translation. He actually said... Who, who's we? Uh, well, he. I'll, I'll, re I'll read what he said. Um, we. <laughs> he said, let me see. He said, the opening keynote lecture by David Bellos made very clear the need for meaning translations rather than literal translations, oh, yeah. as illustrated by examples from French novels. My impression from comments made throughout the rest of the conference is that there was general agreement on this. However, the Buddhist scriptures are not French novels. Their words have to be considered sacred and inviolable. Mm -hmm. For this reason, the Tibetan translations of the Buddhist scriptures were required to be literal translations, not meaning translations. Mm -hmm. It is this very literalness that has given the Tibetan Buddhist canon the well-deserved reputation for its extreme accuracy, unmatched in history. The fact that the Tibetan Buddhist scriptures are literal translations of their Sanskrit originals, not meaning translations, is something that all Tibetan translators need to be fully aware of if they are not already. Right? So, Jake Garfield would pick a fight with that, though, and say that it's actually a literal translation. You know, is is actually you can't find equivalences, especially mm. when you, when it comes to the connotation of words. Mm. So there's always some kind of choice and intervention. Otherwise, we could just take texts and put them in Google Translator mm. and get equivalences, and you wouldn't have literature, especially mm. not verse or anything exhortative or. Um, I, th I think I think the the writer of the letter is a bit confused mm. to make a distinction between literal and meaning translations mm. because. All translations are meaning translations. If there's no meaning there, it's not a translation. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> <clears throat> but he, but, and also, he has this idea that, um, well, as, to take up your point, literal translation, word-for-word -word translation, as um, George Steiner says, for instance, and other people, is actually not a translation. It's, a, it's, it's an extended glossary. If you do a word-for-word -word translation, you just have the individual words translated, but you won't understand the translation unless you know the original language and know what was happening in the original mm -hmm. language. So 
a literal word-for-word -word translation isn't a translation. And in fact, every, every translation is necessarily an interpretation. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem of the translator. The translator is responsible for that. So to go back to what I was saying, that was, re that was why we were so careful to stick to uh, Kempo Kunzampelden's commentary. Um, and the other thing was that um, you should, he, what this person doesn't realize is that the Tibetan translations are not literal translations. It's completely impossible. Because the Sanskrit language is completely different from Tibetan. And in order, the Sanskrit language is incredibly complex. You know, it has three voices. It has active, middle, passive. It has uh, indicative, subjunctive, optative, imperative, and so on. It has an elaborate case system, which doesn't come through in the Tibetan. The, all the, 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 in order to, rem, to render the Sanskrit, the Tibetan translators had to make all sorts of choices. And they, because the, like for instance, the Tibetan verb has just four roots, three tenses, and an imperative. And that's it. So they don't make a difference between active and passive. There's no difference between uh, indicative, subjunctive, optative. So when these, when these uh, features occur in the Sanskrit, they actually collapse them into the four roots of the Tibetan verb, usually helped, on, uh, helped by various auxiliaries. So, and in the same way, when you're translating Tibetan into English, Tibetan syntax is completely different from English syntax. You can't, it's impossible to do a word for word. Every translation is necessarily a paraphrase. But in other words, you read the, so you read the Tibetan and you then re-say it in English in a completely different way. So when I'm, when I'm talking about Tibetan grammar in my, in the, we do classes in Dordogne, those who are interested. And what, one of the things I say to them is when you're translating, you know, we have, we have reading classes and we go through the different texts, is that it's a little bit like dying and being reborn. <laughs> Provided you understand it in the Buddhist sense, not in the Hindu sense, right? In other words, you read the Tibetan, and at that point, the Tibetan dies. And it goes into a sort of bardo state where you can see the way the Tibetan writer has arranged his ideas, but it's not in a way that you could possibly say in your own language. Then, when you've understood that, you sort of put it into an English sentence which arranges the ideas according in the English way. So it kind of emerges in its new life in an English body, you see. And if, and if, if you've managed to translate it, then whatever was the meaning in the old life emerges in the new life <laughs> with all the differences that you find between you know, a person who dies in the previous existence and is born in the next. There is a continuity, but they are completely different, right? They're both different and the same. So, you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So this guy is, is actually, he, he doesn't, he, he doesn't realize how different Sanskrit and Tibetan are. 
So when, you know, when they say, they used to say that it's true, the Tibetan translations are so accurate, and they are, but you, and they used to say it's so accurate that you can retranslate back into Sanskrit from them, but, and this is complete nonsense. Any, any Sanskrit scholar will tell you that it's not true. What you can do is that because the Tibetans, by law, had to agree on certain vocabulary and, stu and stuck to it, more or less, you can more or less see on the level of individual words what the Sanskrit must have been, usually. Probably not, but anyway. <laughs> uh, but anyway, the, the actual syntax, the actual... You, you, cannot, you, cannot, you cannot possibly glimpse the original Sanskrit through the Tibetan sentence. That's impossible. So I'd, I'd like to take that Bardo analogy. Yeah. I love that, that you're bringing the, the text to life in a new language. And think about the, the continuities then between them. Um, Umberto Eco talks about functional equivalences, and particularly in relation to kind of an aesthetic mood. And uh, another passage that we had picked out and in chapter seven, I, I just love the sort of ravages of hell kind of passages. It's so quintessentially Shantideva. And um, you, know, you do this incredible job of inducing fear. Mm. And I wonder if you could say you know, how you chose to create a sense of urgency in a particular mood in this passage. So this is chapter 7, verses 9 to 12. Your tear-stained well, cheeks. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty close to the, what the Tibetan says. Mm -hmm. The Drakpa uh, Yi Mi'kmar, the eyes red with the... Um, and, and uh, you know, the face wet with tears and so on. Um, but, of course, the difficulty with... Um, with this trans with the, with all with all with Tibetan verse is that the Tibetan verse often misses out uh, crucial bits, you know, like a particle or, and so you have to when you when you actually go through a, what's called a word commentary, each each syllable of the Tibetan verse will be kind of included, and the commentator will give you synonyms or explain what's going on and so on and so forth. Uh, but it, it was basically that what what caught my imagination was just the content, mm -hmm. and um, and you will see that um, I changed the order mm -hmm. in the second in the in the mm -hmm. uh, revised text because um, what you. What I wanted to bring out was something in the Tibetan that you don't see in the first. I, I said, you'll gaze into the faces of your hopeless friends and see the coming verses of the, the servants of the deadly Lord. But actually what it says is you'll see two kinds of face. You'll see the face of your hopeless friends and then you'll see right. the faces of the deadly, the right. heralds, right? Mm -hmm. um, these are just, it's, that's a small point, but... Uh, uh, but there are all kinds of choices, like in verse 10, you know, where you have... Nyawe Drani Tupayi, right, which is just the sound of hell you'll hear. Mm. The scream and din of hell breaks on your ears. Now come on, that is that's powerful. There's some there's some something you're creating there. I don't you know, maybe improving the text or maybe creating a kind of mood. Yeah, I mean it's it wasn't just my 
imagination. I mean, this is, I'm sort of adding bits from Campo Kunpel, Okay. you know, mm -hmm. that, uh, to bring out the, uh, the kind of drama of the, the situation. Mm -hmm. Because uh, the point is, at least, at least the kind of translation where kind of we aim for in Padmakara is actually to help people practice. And the point is that, uh, you know, what Shantideva is doing is trying to scare us to death. Mm -hmm. And it's important to, uh, you know, as you, as you reflect on this and you, you know, you think, what, what will it be like when I'm dying? And, you know, and I think back on what I've done with my life and uh, I think about what's coming. And it's a very frightening moment and it's important to... Uh, you know, imaginatively evoke that while there's still time to do something about it. <laughs> <laughs> so it seemed, it seemed justifiable to sort of crank it up a bit, I guess. Um, Great. Do we want to leave time for, for questions from the floor? Was that your idea, Marcus? Yes, yes, if you're ready for questions. I think there's a question back there, yeah. <laughs> Oh, we have to. Uh... We'll just <laughs> contemplate the ravages of hell for a moment while we still have our precious life. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to hear your thoughts on translation. Um, my question, I'm fascinated by your partnership with Helena in your work. Mm. So you said that she, I didn't totally grasp what you mean, so I'd love to hear more about it. So she goes from the Tibetan to the English, and then you also go from the Tibetan to the English, but sort of further with the English was my understanding. Yeah, she, she's, uh, she's not English herself. She's Czech. Oh, okay. Right. So she, uh, she can't. She, I mean, she. Her English is actually very good, but her, you know, she doesn't like to write. She's not confident enough to write in her, in English. So, um, but her, she knows a lot more Tibetan than I do. Or at least she did. I mean, I've I've learned a lot from her since. And um, so she is. She, what she does is she does the kind of uh, first draft. And. Then I go over it in the light of the Tibetan, which has been very helpful for me to, as a means to learn Tibetan, actually. So, uh, and then, uh, then it goes backwards and forwards. I, I make my changes, and then she usually screams at me for saying I've, I, you know, I've misunderstood what she meant, and uh, and uh, you know I have to go back and do it again, and you know. <laughs> but then gradually there's a kind of to and fro, and uh, and we sort of we kind of come to a final decision. It's not always easy, <laughs> but it's the kind of dynamic that... Um, it's something I, I, I appreciate very much. Uh, I mean, and then now, actually, some things I've done on my own, uh, like, for instance, the um, um, part of the, the uh, Mipam on the Wisdom chapter. She's not terribly interested in Majamika. And uh, she's, and anyway, she was very busy working on Longchenpa. So, um, 
It was a case question of personal interest. So, but, but of course, she, she, I submit everything to her, and she reads it through, and we check each other. And sort of. So even though it's not, it's not a committee effort, nevertheless, it's a sort of shared effort. Yeah. Where do the yeah. Kempos and the commentaries come in? Is, are they earlier before that, the first rendering into English? Or well, after? the way that we always preferred to, <laughs> preferred to work was actually to take, a te take the full teaching from the Kempo. Right. So, uh, like for instance, in the uh, introduction to the Middle Way, uh, the whole thing was taught by Zonsu Kenzo Rinpoche, which was a marvelous experience. At the adornment of the, the middle way, the whole thing was taught by um, Kempa Pemishera. Mm. And then we sort of used our notes and what we'd understood and then made the translation. And that's the best way because, mm. you know, it's certainly the, the, it's less time consuming um, and you get a much better idea of the, the meaning. Um, it hasn't, unfortunately, it hasn't always worked out like that. But uh, what, you know, when we have questions, we sort of save them up, and then when um, there's a camp or when Rimbush is around, we can sort of ask him. But um, the other thing that I that I wanted to mention here, I'll, I'll be bringing it up later, is that uh, this text was um, made following the commentary of Kempo Kunzang Pelden who was uh, following the teaching of Patrul Rinpoche. <laughs> and, and we followed him in all things, right? Uh, Patrul Rinpoche and uh, Kempo Kumpel were Nyingmapas, Naive, in, in complete naivety, we assumed that this was the meaning, you know. <laughs> but of course, it was only later that we discovered that actually there are other commentaries who don't always comment in the same way. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and this was brought home to me very much in working on the wisdom chapter, where the Galupas have a very different take on the um, uh, on the ninth chapter. Right. So, uh, I, I, th I think it's, I think as a practical arrangement, you have to follow, decide what you're going to follow, and it doesn't matter, provided you tell your reader what you're doing, mm -hmm. right. So, you know, this is a Nyingma translation, right? If, but of course, if you're, going, if you're going to be, if you're going to, if you want your text to be used by other traditions, it's a good idea to try and come up with something that can be interpreted in different ways, which is yeah. not easy. And so there are, there are some cases in the, in the ninth chapter where they've had to be retranslated so that they can be interpreted in the Galupa way and in a, a Nyingma way. So, but that's an ongoing, you see, as I said, there's no such thing as a definitive translation, and especially, you know, when you're learning on the job, mm -hmm. you know, you're, there are, it's going to be, it's bound to be imperfect, it's bound to leave something to be desired, but, you know, later on, maybe, you know, somebody will come along and, and fix it, yeah, so. <laughs> Other questions? One of the things I notice in the revision is a change in the um, use of gender into gender-neutral vocabulary. Mm -hmm. So I was just curious about that choice. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, when I did um, uh, 
When I did the first version, I was pretty unrestructured, as they say. <laughs> and I had quite a few uh, arguments with Kendra Crossan, who was the editor in Shambhala. And she, she said, of course, it doesn't matter to me, but um, you have to do what you want. But, if, you know, we are, we are trying to adopt a, p a policy of gender inclusiveness. And this was uh, much str more strongly held by, um, um, oh, not Tracy Davis. Um, sorry. This is terrible, I should remember. Um, Emily. Emily Bauer, yes, that's right. Uh, who was much more, uh, you know, she, she didn't, accept this so and anyway you know uh, the fact is that uh, over the years um, you see it like from a, a kind of point of view of traditional grammar the ma the masculine pronoun was always considered to be inclusive for humans to distinguish humans from gods or animals right so um, um, if you tell this to anybody, he should, whatever. And you mean anybody, whether male or female. And traditionally, you only use the feminine pronoun if you wanted to, make, to be specifically referring to women, right? So like in the 19th, 20th century, female novelists, even when speaking about women, they would use the masculine pronoun. Uh, but obviously, this is not happening now. So this is not, it's not understood like that now, and uh, you have to move with the times. And especially, you know, when you go to there are so many Dharma events, and the vast majority are women. And uh, so there's no point in doing things that, ir that irritates them or accepts them. So uh, I, th I think it's, it's, but it's a challenge in, you know, what to do about it. I mean, in... You can do it by, what I tend to do is to put things in the plural, which uh, you can do because Tibetan, as a rule, doesn't mark the plural or singular. It can be understood in both ways. Obviously, you, uh, I've used the masculine pronoun when Shantideva is referring to himself. And, of course, in the eighth chapter, when he's talking about the problem of um, keeping the vows of celibacy, and he's talking to an audience of monks, he kind of reminds them of the disgusting aspects of the female body. If he'd been talking to a, a group of nuns, or if it was a Yeshe Sogyal talking to a community of nuns, or female practitioners, it would have been appropriate for her to talk about the disgusting aspects of the male body. So it's, you have to be... You know, I, I think we say somewhere in the introduction that the, the reader has to have a certain flexibility and to realise that it's not being sexist. Right, I mean, you can't get, you can't very well rewrite uh, Shantideva. You have to understand that he's speaking within a specific cultural context, and mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, depending on your sexual orientation, you will make the necessary adjustments. Right? Well, this is this was a hot topic at the last translators' conference, mm -hmm. right? Do you re reproduce the misogyny of the original? <laughs> Or do you improve the text? Um, 
but I think in this case, you know, one of the tensions, at least, that Luis Gomez points to with the mm. translations of the Bodhicharya is this question of, is it a world classic meant to have universal appeal, or is it a culturally situated, specifically monastic text? And it's interesting because it's got passages mm. that are both, right? Yes. Sometimes it is specifically monastic. Mm. There are sections on conduct that are really coming out of Vinaya. And then there are sections that are absolutely talking to all of us as humans. Mm. So yeah. how do you navigate that as a translator? Gingerly. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, you, yeah, I mean, you've got to, uh, in the end, you have to do your best, <laughs> you know. I mean, there are some cases where he actually says, um, I can't remember exactly where, that when he's talking about bodhicitta, it's either male or female. It doesn't, there's no difference. Um, and of course, in, in texts like Yeshe Sogyanamta, Guru Rinpoche says, actually, uh, if you have bodhicitta, the female form is superior, which is an interesting idea. But anyway, Senator David doesn't say this uh, in the in this context. But um, I think I think you know if you're producing an academic translation, where you're trying to be as uh, explicit and and faithful to the the original text, so that you're actually telling the reader what the original text says and how it says it, then probably you should keep the male, the masculine pronoun. But in this kind of translation, where the, uh, the practitioner is aimed at, I think, I think it, there's no point in, in adding this unnecessary problem. So I think, I think it's justified to iron that out mm -hmm. and to remove it. I don't think it's being unfaithful to Shantideva. Mm -hmm. I really don't. Well, I think audience consideration is key. Actually, a lot of times the um, androcentric quality of the text is introduced by the translator. Mm. You know, yes. sometimes the pronoun mm. isn't there and it's introduced as, as he, and so that's certainly mm. unnecessary. But, I, but for instance, in the, in the tenth chapter in the dedication, mm -hmm. he says, by the merit of this t translation, may all women become men. Mm -hmm. Right? That's what the Tibetan says. And... Um, well, we didn't put that, obviously. <laughs> and I, I sort of made a... I said, may they, uh, may they acquire the strength... The of, strength, yeah. ...or the advantages of masculinity. Yeah. And sort of explained it in a footnote, <laughs> saying uh, it can't possibly have meant may they all become men because that'll be the end of the human race. Uh, but actually, I don't think he meant that. I think that was... I, I think that's probably not quite what he was getting at. Uh, we had this argument with uh, Alizenko Rinpoche once mm -hmm. when he asked us to translate a, a commentary on the prayer to be reborn in Deochen mm -hmm. mm. by Kama Chakme. And of course, uh, there are no women in Deochen. Mm -hmm. If you go to Deochen, you're necessarily a man, a male. And not only that, you are born with the, the robes already on you. <laughs> so, and then, so when Kama Chakme explains all this, he goes into a, a very long, unpleasant description of the defects of being a woman, mm. right? Mm. And uh, so Alizanka Aramsha asked us to do this. And when Helena came to this passage, she said, I'm not translating this. Mm. There's absolutely no point. This is not true for Western English-speaking 
women, or English-speaking men for that matter. There's absolutely no point. There is a point, and then, then we, so she, we told this to Alessandro, and he said, oh, well, um, that's, just, that's just your Western point of view. He said, if you were Chinese, you might feel differently. <laughs> to which Helena said, well, translated into Chinese. <laughs> 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 so who won in the end? Well, we didn't do it. You didn't do it. You didn't do the whole prayer, or you didn't no, do didn't that do passage. That. We didn't do the commentary. Uh huh. And um, I mean, he took it very well, but <laughs> but it but it was true. I mean, it's you know, if you if you're if you're going if you're being born as a woman in you know Sudan and you're going to be subjected to some horrible mutilation or you're being born a, you're going to be aborted in China because nobody wants a baby, baby girl or you're going to be born in Afghanistan and reduced to slavery then yes I mean by all means make aspirations not to be born a woman a woman in those situations but it doesn't it doesn't work if you're a, you're a Western woman this it doesn't. It doesn't convey. It doesn't convey that meaning at all. It conveys rather a kind of insult, and a, mm -hmm. and um, which I'm sure is not Shantideva's intention. Mm -hmm. So, but it was badly right. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> Here comes the mic. <laughs> but I think not only that with that particular prayer, uh, you know. Dewachan is supposed to be attractive so that you wish to be born there. Mm -hmm. And different things would be attractive to, in different cultures. You know, just like the story of the Tibetan tea and the, the Lama yeah, who couldn't go there until someone told him there was Tibetan tea there. And I had a friend, Dechen, you probably know her, Dechen Cronin, in, in a retreat, and she was constantly complaining that she didn't want to go to Dewachan because they were all men. Mm -hmm. yeah. And worse, monks. <laughs> So it, it defeats the purpose mm. of the prayer itself mm. not to change it. It, mm -hmm. it no longer serves the purpose I think it was intended for. Mm. Mm. I agree. I think, and, and, but also in Tibetan society even now, if you asked a Tibetan, a group of Tibetan men, you know, who, who wants to be born as a woman in the next life, yeah. they wouldn't. Well, I wouldn't. You know, because it's the women who do all the work. <laughs> oh, come on. Okay. So, but I mean, you know, there's got to be some, they have to learn, right? But it's, um, of course, you know, there's always, been, there's always been the Dakini tradition, there's always been the Tantric tradition. In the tradition of Dujam Rinpoche, they've never uh, had this idea of, uh, of the woman being uh, inferior. It's so pervasive, though. It's, it is. It's, it's so pervasive, and it's internalized by women. So you find in their own biographies or autobiographies, mm. wishing to be born male, and you know, disparaging their female body. Mm. And in that case, you have to translate it as is, because you have to have that cultural knowledge that that mm. was, you know, that that was the reality and an issue, and then see how rhetorically they handle it. 
So Sarah Jacoby's done a wonderful job of looking at um, this issue in relation to Sarah Condro's autobiographical corpus and just how she manages that so that she uses those moments of self-doubt in relation to the female body to sort of humble herself. And then, of course, the Dakinis show up and tell her otherwise, and mm. so it trumps that negative stereotype. But I think, you know, so we're really in a tricky place as translators because we, you know, the, we don't mm. want to erase those yeah. cultural artifacts, and at the same time, we don't want to pass down negative stereotypes into yeah. this next rebirth of the Dharma yeah. in English. That was actually one of the pleasant aspects of translating the life of Nyesha Sogya. Because mm -hmm. she's, she's sort of speaking, a lot of the time she's speaking in the first person, and she describes all these incredible adventures, you know, like going off on her own to India and Nepal and being attacked by robbers and so on. And every so often she will say, I, the woman, Yeshitsogyal, did this. Mm -hmm. And then later on, you know, there are some poems where she says, where she kind of repeats all the sort of bad things that other women had said about, you know, this, this manipulator, this manipulator, this slut, this, this and so on. She's, she's tricked her way What's into the, the Dharma Kaya. <laughs> <laughs> and she says, and you know, she sort of contrasts it with actually, um, uh, you know, I have attained the Dharmakaya. And, I, and so when she's, when in one of her farewell discourses, she's talking to the person who had been Arya Sale, mm -hmm. who had been her first consort. And she said, um, you were my first consort and you were very dear to me. But there were times when you treated me as an ordinary woman and you thought of me as an ordinary woman. And for that reason, the karmic consequences will be as follows. So she, she, was, very, uh, she was very aware of that and she must have struggled against it all her life. And, but at the end, she has this kind of, uh, this magnificent stature and she's some sort of, of a Buddha, right? In female form. So... That's, that, that's a, it's a very beautiful um, uh, namtar. And now there are more yeah. versions of yeah. Yeshitsogyal's namtar coming yeah. to light. I believe yeah. one of them being published by Shambhala soon. So, and studies of Yeshitsogyal, mm. um, mm. academic, but still hopefully of interest. Mm. Good. Anything else? Any other questions? Regarding this, was that um, you translated these with the intention that they will inspire practice? So I just wanted to share that my Lama Garchin Rinpoche made all of his students memorize the tenth chapter, the dedication mm -hmm. of the Padmakara translation, <laughs> um, and it was the first edition. So I remember, may all women attain the strength of masculinity, and so forth. So I'm yeah. sort of pleased that there's a second edition. I think we still keep that in this. In the, oh, it's, yeah. it's already improved. <laughs> <laughs> So, we'll spend is it, but is there anything else that you would like <laughs> to see changed? Any, anything that you didn't like? In the, in particular, the dedication Any, chapter. Well, then anything. That they... um, also, in the dedication chapter, I've, I haven't looked at the second edition, so I'm not sure what the rendering mm. is. Um, there's the bit about, um, and may all, something about the um, slanderous women or the women who. Gossip, or I can't remember exactly what it is. Um, 
May, there's one thing about may all the nuns get on together. Yes, basically may they bring harmony, but there's something about how they're always so... May quarreling vindictiveness yeah, be strange to them. Yeah. yeah. That did sound familiar, actually. <laughs> and, and, but anyway. <laughs> Those quarreling nuns. Um, mm. So anything else that, that um, you'd like to convey um, that, you know, readers of translated works from Tibetan or Sanskrit Buddhist texts should think about as they're approaching the translation? Um, you mean reading or translating? Yeah. Yeah. In in reading, actually, because a lot yeah. of people, you know, um, are avid fans of your translations, yeah. and if there's any advice, you know, I think I think the main thing is that you should always remember that it's not definitive, mm -hmm. and it has many many defects. I'm I'm painfully aware of, I, I'm I'm painfully aware that it has many defects, so uh, it's work in progress and. Uh, you know, somebody will do a better job later, and uh, that's fine. You know, and actually, in other words, to take things light, light-heartedly, not to take things too seriously. Mm. Um, that's basically it. You know. Every, everything is just provisional. Provisional. <laughs> <laughs> that's one of the difficulties, actually, publish, publish books because they get fixed, and it's actually quite difficult and rare to get the opportunity to do a revision. So I was actually really grateful that it was possible. I mean, even, th you know, this is by no means definitive, but it was, at least I think it's an improvement. Maybe, maybe you don't. <laughs> but, um, yeah. And I think we have a word from our sponsor. Uh, no, a question. A question, okay. I was just wondering, Wilston, um, this is kind of a weird question, but do you have any uh, suggestions for aspiring translators mm -hmm. just on their English, on the mm -hmm. English part? How to... <laughs> I mean, the, you know, education has changed, mm -hmm. and I think our generation is not as strong as, you know, some in the past, I mean, arguably. And I'm just wondering if you have any words of advice on just how to take it up a level for yeah. people. Yeah, I mean, in, um, people of my generation had the advantage of uh, having to study Latin at school. And uh, Latin is very uh, intolerant of unclarity. If a Latin sentence is unclear, it's wrong, you know. So, and it also imparts a very strong sense of grammar. So I think that uh, it's very important to master English grammar, which actually is not very difficult. It's not a complicated grammar, right? But it's important to get it right and to write correctly. And then the second thing is that it's important to read enormously English literature, and not just modern English literature. You know, of course, modern English literature, which begins with Shakespeare, and if you can, Middle English, and if you can, learn some Old English, because you get a kind of sense of the, the resonance and the sonority of the English language, and the fact that it is a hybrid that many languages have flowed into it. And so it, it's, a, it's produced an, an extraordinarily flexible tool. And uh, so it's important to 
really read English literature and familiarize with yourself also with English translations and the way that translators have worked in English in the past. Um, the trouble is that once you get into Dharma, you cease to be interested in a lot of the sort of things that literature's about. Uh, so it's actually quite handy if you've already done it before you become a Buddhist. <laughs> <laughs> but still, you know, you, you can read. There, there, are good, there are wonderful things. That and I, stuff. <laughs> actually, one of the... Uh, one of, we talked about this. I don't know if you're in the group, but in the first, in the first uh, uh, conference in Boulder, I said, you know, it doesn't have to be... You don't have to be reading Dickens too much. <laughs> Tolkien is an excellent model. Mm. Tolkien's English is superb. And Tolkien had a, had an, a, unique, a, a unique knowledge of the history of the English language. So he's quite a good guide for writing prose. Then in poetry, you know, the sky's the limit. I mean, it's whatever you like, both modern and ancient. But it is important to do it. It is important to en enrich your language. And then that, mean, that, that will give you all sorts of possibilities. You know, uh, you, you think of different ways of saying things. And, uh, the way, and, the, and the, another thing that's very important is that you should always try to hear what you write. Mm. That's a very important thing. It's not, many, many people don't do this. They think that if you just write the correct sentence, it's okay. <laughs> but it's much better if you can hear it and it'll... The way the you can even even in prose, you know, the way you know you avoid useless repetitions. You get a sen you get a sense of you know alliteration, the re repetition of first letters of the words and so on, and and how that can um, it it make it, it it brings a sort of musicality to your writing that people find charming, and when they are charmed, they'll come back for more. And, uh, you know, it's the teaspoon of honey, basically. But that's, that, I think that's really, uh, you know, if you can do that as much as possible, then that will really help everybody. <laughs> Sorry, I've talked too much. No, that's a very much of a kindness <clears throat> to your reader. Mm. To yes, give them honey reading, and not exactly. vinegar. <laughs> I hope this isn't too personal, an inquiry, but I'm wondering what your relationship is with Shantideva. Um, how much of a devotional practice to Shantideva was going on along with the translation? Mm -hmm. How much arguing with Shantideva, <laughs> with the commentators? Uh, what was that process like? Um, I didn't do a practice based on Shantideva at the time. In fact, I don't know of one. Um, what sort of kind of carried me along was the, uh, the effect of seeing, um, the, the experience of seeing the effect that Shantideva had on my teachers mm -hmm. and uh, the way that they had uh, sort of steeped themselves so long in this text and uh, that they were almost like Shantideva himself. You know, he, they, 
the sort of you know you you, you can you can meet a, a master who and actually you could read passages of Shantideva and that's actually describing that person you know like the Dalai Lama is a case in point uh, so um, I wasn't sort of um, I didn't sort of have a kind of personal relationship with Shantideva no it was uh, I mean of course it's not it's not possible not to feel devotion to him when you read I mean, no, almost nothing is known about his life with any kind of certainty. But, but you see what the man was like by the sort of things he says. And uh, so, yes, he becomes your teacher in that sense. Mm-hmm. Even though, you know, the standard is so impossible to attain, nevertheless, you're sort of drawn along by his example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was, there, was nothing mis- there was nothing mystical going on. It was very, very important. <laughs> no visions of Shanti Deva. <laughs> <laughs> any other questions? Or if there aren't any more questions, I was wondering, Wollstone, if you wouldn't mind reading one of your favorite passages to us as a kind of mm-hmm. end. All right. It's not very long. Um. With things that in this way are empty, what is there to gain and what to lose? Who is there to pay me court and honours? And who is there to scorn and to revile me? Pleasure, sorrow, whence do these arise? What is there to give me joy and pain? And if I search their very suchness, who is craving what is craved? Examine now this world of living beings. Who is there therein to pass away? What is there to come and what has been? And who indeed are relatives and friends? May beings like myself discern and grasp that all things have the character of space, But those who seek their happiness and ease through disputes or enjoyments, all are deeply troubled or else filled with joy. They suffer, strive, contend among themselves, slashing, stabbing, injuring each other. They live their lives engulfed in evil and travail. From time to time they surface in the states of bliss, abandoning themselves to many pleasures. But dying, down they fall to suffer torment long unbearable in realms of sorrow. Many are the chasms and abysses of existence where the truth of suchness is not found. All is contradiction, all denial. Suchness in this world is not like this. Here, exceeding all description, is the shoreless sea of pain unbearable. Here it is that strength is low and lives are flickering and brief. All activities for sake of life and health, relief of hunger and of weariness, time consumed in sleep, all accident and injury, and sterile friendships with the childish. Thus life passes quickly, meaningless. True discernment, hard it is to have. How therefore shall we ever find the means to curb the futile wanderings of the mind? Further, evil forces work and strain to cast us down into the states of woe, Manifold are false deceptive trails, 
and it is hard to dissipate our doubts. Hard it is to find again this state of freedom, harder yet to come upon enlightened teachers, hard indeed to turn aside the torrent of defilement. Alas, our sorrows fall in endless streams. Alas, indeed, that living beings, carried on the flood of bitter pain, however terrible their plight may be, do not perceive they suffer so. They are like those who bathe themselves repeatedly and then proceed to scorch themselves with fire. They suffer greatly in this way, yet there they stay, proclaiming loud their bliss. Likewise, there are some who live and act as though old age and death will never come to them. At first they're slain, and then there comes the dreadful fall into the states of loss. When shall I be able to allay and quench the dreadful heat of suffering's blazing fires with plenteous rains of my own bliss that pour torrential from my clouds of merit? My wealth of merit gathered in, with reverence but without conceptual target, when shall I reveal this truth of emptiness to those who go to ruin through belief in real existence? Sorry, it's a bit gloomy, but... <laughs> Thank you, Austin. It's always something that's um, <laughs> inspired me. That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rolston, and thank you, Holly. Mm -hmm.